Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm Justin Podor. Today, we discuss the sharing economy. Uber, Airbnb, and others have become massive players in cities by monetizing sharing. And since no one is against sharing, all is good, right? My guest Tom Slee has been studying the sharing economy, and it turns out there are some downsides to it that you may not have thought about. I'm here with Tom Slee, author of What's Yours is Mine, Against the Sharing Economy. So, uh, Tom, why don't you just tell me a bit about the sharing economy, a bit about the book, and why you wrote it, and what's in it? Right. Well, the sharing economy is is a new movement of, uh, mainly now, of companies from Silicon Valley. And the whole idea behind it, uh, if you go back for between five and ten years, is that people could use software platforms to exchange not just you know not just updates like on Facebook, um, and not even trinkets like on eBay, but uh, significant commercial transactions outside of uh, th- through the platform. So you can no longer talk about the sharing economy without talking about the two leading uh, companies in the space. Uh, one is Uber, you know, the taxi people, and one is Airbnb, the travel people. So um, both of them, in, in a way, if you if you look at them, are software platforms that simply ex- enable the exchange of, in one case, rooms, in another case, cars between people. But uh, so, so I think I, I think there was a, a lot of like like a lot of things that have come out of digital technology and, and Silicon Valley. There's a lot of uh, nice sounding um, ideals behind this when you started off. And mm-hmm. what prompted me to, to write my book was that it seemed very quickly that um, these ideals um, were being betrayed. So there's a lot of ideals that get invoked that I think resonate with people with generally left-wing points of view. So a lot of stuff about equality you know, we don't need big companies anymore to do things. We can just deal with things. Hey, it's just you and me over the internet. Uh, direct mm-hmm. peer-to-peer exchange, some notions of decentralization, some notions of uh, e- um, a, a, a sort of a green aspect to this because, hey, we're making better use of our resources. Um, so all those kind of things speak to many people on the left. And um, to be honest, what really got me annoyed was was to see this language being used and to see the companies involved doing something that seems to me completely the opposite. So it's that sense of, of betrayal in a sense that motivated me to write it. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, a few years later, it's grown, it's expanded, it's uh, hitting the mainstream now, and it's raising all kinds of challenges. And I think it's going to be an important debate how 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 these different companies in different parts of the sharing economy shake out. So let's let's start with talking a bit about Uber. And Uber is this company that starts with this premise that you know you have a car and you can just your it's your friend with a car. I think and you you compared Uber to Lyft and some of the other earlier platforms that that didn't end up shaking out to be the mega winner. And Uber is your friend with a car and it's not an employer uh, except that. It imposes various conditions on drivers, like a driver has to accept 90% of rides, otherwise they're kicked off the platform. So doesn't that make Uber an employer in some sense? Um, Indeed, I think it does. I mean, you're right. To go back to the beginning of it, um, 
Uber is a slightly odd case in that very early on, it didn't want to see itself as part of the sharing economy, which at that time had had this sort of populist movement. Right from the beginning, Uber has been, a, you know, its its CEO is is a known devotee of Ayn Rand. It's 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 a known sort of libertarian outfit, and um, many of its funders come from the same kind of perspective. Um, so, but nevertheless, once it saw an opportunity to move into this this space, it certainly took it on with a vengeance. And uh, yeah, I think the the term "your friend with a car" comes from its competitor Lyft, but right now Uber is certainly the top dog in in that market. So. Um, yeah, the whole 1099 issue, as they call it in the States, you know, a 1099 being the tax form filled out by, by self-employed people, um, is a challenge. And, and I think what's happened there is it, it is symptomatic of the way that the platforms have worked. I think what they've seen is that, you know, sure, technology is great. I, I think we can't dispute the fact if you look ahead in 10 years into the future, you know, are we going to be using digital technologies for more in our lives or for less? Well, you know, for more. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean we have to take all the business models that come along with it. And I, I think in this case, Uber is certainly trying to cast itself as the inevitable technological future. But but when you look at it, it's building a business model around taking a significant portion of every ride, you know, taking 30% or so out of every ride and having no responsibilities whatsoever if anything goes wrong. Um, having control over its drivers, as you say, telling them that they have to accept 90% of rides, um, trying to control their behavior, giving them bonus. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can nudge drivers' behavior. Um, uh, it has the right to dismiss them basically arbitrarily from the platform. So it has a significant amount of control over its drivers and yet not wanting to take any responsibility uh, for them, for their conditions, or, or, or for anything that goes wrong for them on the platform. Well, this is one of the most powerful statements that I that I remember reading in the book where you talk about this is not liberating us through technology. It's actually extending control and surveillance and deregulation into parts of our lives that have previously had some kind of regulation. And that's where the profits are being made. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you, I don't know whether you want to talk a bit about more about that in the Uber context. Yeah, I think we, we've always had, um, you know, there's, there's always been a spectrum in the economy from our personal exchanges, which, of course, are pretty much unregulated, you know, going back to so from social exchanges, but even ones that involve money, you know, it's just it's just a, a, an informal economy that's always existed right up to the um you know the, the the largest companies in the land, and I think um, for all its faults, you know, in in, in a in, in a comp- in, in an economy that's somewhere between um, you know full capitalism and has tinges of social democracy on it, it's generally accepted that as companies get bigger, have more infrastructure, have more influence in the economy, then along with that, you take on more responsibility. So what's happened here, though, is they've seen a way to say, hey, you know what, all these things that are going on in the gray economy, we can take those so that we can become a very big company, and yet we can have no responsibility. And I think I think that's been very successful for them. I mean, in term, I mean, market capitalization doesn't mean doesn't mean everything, but right mm-hmm. now, um, you know, it's 
it's it's still a privately owned company, of course, but you know Uber's market capitalization, estimated market value is is now up with the biggest car firms. It's, you know, it's up up there with the um, uh, the the Fords and the General Motors of the world. So now you have a company like that that basically says, oh yeah, we're just an inform a bunch of informal exchanges, and and that just doesn't hold water. So, and there's a you I remember a quote from your book where. So one of the investors asks the one of the major majors in, in Uber saying, you know, you have the, why do you have to in, are you really need to increase the the percentage that you take from each transaction? You've got happy customers and happy drivers. Why do you have to do this? And he says, because we can. That's right. Exactly what they said. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think whenever we talk about large firms, there's always this tension between you know, in a way, a firm is a firm, right? They, they are simply carriers of incentives. They respond to, to pressure. They respond to the demand for profit. But despite that, you know, we can still see that individual firms do have, you know, they do have to some extent their own culture. They do have to some extent their own attitude. And uh, certainly Uber, let's just say it is a very easy company to dislike. <laughs> it's, culture. it's a culture of, you know, of overt sexism, uh, mm -hmm. culture that's gone after female journalists who comment on it, you know, including looking at their private data, threatening to mm -hmm. do more. It's a company that hired, you know, hired, um, offered rides in Paris, you know, we'll get a hot chick to drive you. I mean, it's Ugh. just, it's just a sexist, um, I guess the term now among the young people is, you know, it's a bro kind of uh, yeah. atmosphere. And so, uh, and I know they're trying to they're trying to sort of adapt from that and try to say, oh well, we've grown beyond that. Um, but I do think there, there there are vestiges of that still there, and will be for some time. Yeah. There, there's a there's a there's a discussion or a, a pitch that the sharing economy makes, which is that through a rating system, mm. we're able to overcome some of the problems of trust that you would have otherwise in these exchanges. And you talk about the rating system uh, in, a, in a way, in terms that are not about building trust, but it's not replacing trust, but it's, you were talking about it, it's actually the manager from hell. Can you talk a bit more about the, the rating system and how it works? Yeah, this, and this goes beyond the sense, beyond the sharing economy stuff in a way, but you know, it's that they, they both have, so Uber has it, Airbnb has it. The, there are, there are other companies in the sharing economy who, who classify themselves that way. There are companies that do house cleaning. There are companies that do deliveries. Um, there are companies that do odd jobs. There are companies that have workplaces and so on. So there's all these, all these platforms out there. And one of the things that they all have built into them is this reputation system where you, know, you get to the end of a ride and you rate the driver and the driver rates you. But it's always, there's always an asymmetry to this. One party always suffers more from the, the downgrading. You know, if, if, I, if I get a downgrade on an Uber drive, it's not going to affect my life. But if the driver does, it can. And most people, most of the time, you know, out of politeness, really, tend to give good reviews. And as a result... Most of the time, you know, it's like a leave a bed and breakfast, for example. Uh, you know, there's a guest book or you, you walk out of a little old museum or something. There's a guest book. No one puts bad comments in guest books. You know, you know, you just you just say thanks very much. Um, you know, and off you go. So so in general, most of the comments are fine. And what that means is 
really there's no way of distinguishing in terms of quality like who's good and who's bad through through the it creates an aura of good service but it doesn't actually provide it so but the other thing of course i mean i think it's one of these things you know to establish trust is one of these concepts that the closer you look at it the less there is to it it sort of vanishes completely as you start to take it apart mm-hmm. you know i mean the obvious thing is that the the driver in kalamazoo who went around killing people recently had a you know, had a rating of four point seven three out of five, which is not bad. So, you know, <laughs> well, he would have got dumped. You get dumped if you have less than four point seven, right? Well, you, you, yeah. So, so, so you get. I think four point six, four point seven. But okay. it, it's you know, I, I think there are to, to see. The, there have been a lot of studies done to say you know, if if you want to say is a driver with a trust level of four point six better than one with four point eight, four point nine? No, you know, it's there's really no measure of quality there. But what it does do is it means that all the time we are able to report on our people who are, who are who are, we're engaged in a service relationship with them. It ends up being basically a snitch society where where we end up reporting on each other to the authority who can do whatever the heck they want with that information. Right. Yeah. And this is that. Yeah. This is exactly that point that you're making, which is that it turns it into a yeah, surveillance, a surveillance type of system. It's not us working out our problems among ourselves or displaying this rating to one another. It's actually reporting it to uh, to Uber, which has great power compared to any one of the people on the platform. On Airbnb, uh, one of the things I liked about your book, uh, one of the many things, but one of the things I liked is that you do a lot of your own research. You did some analysis on the Airbnb website in terms of who is actually making the listings. The image of Airbnb is one of me sharing my room and my house and creating some kind of community, even if it's a community that you're paying me for. But leaving that aside, there's a community aspect to it. Uh, but in fact, when you looked at the listings, uh, you found something different. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and this this was one of the first things that, that got me involved in this. I mean, because in a sense, Air, uh, Uber isn't, as I say, it's, it's an easy company to, to dislike, whereas Airbnb is, makes very much more explicit appeals to the notions of community, notions of openness. Um, we can travel around the world, fail at home wherever we go. Um, th- these are very appealing notions, I think. And so it was... A couple of years ago, there was started to be questions in New York about, well, what kind of a business is it really? You know, is, and there were debates about that. And you know, I work in the technology industry. I'm not an expert programmer, but I can do some programming. So I thought, well, we can answer this a bit. So I wrote a program that goes to the Airbnb website and basically collects all the listings from New York. And it, it showed a couple of things fairly straight in a fairly you know straight up so so one was that yeah that that original idea of you know well air bed and breakfast was what it was air bed the idea of sharing a place you can have three kinds of listings on airbnb you can have share a room which is like a, a you know that is the original idea or you can have a private room in a in a other in someone else's apartment or you can have an entire home or apartment and you know most people think of it as those first two but really, the entire home or apartment is the bulk of what goes on on the on the thing. There, there are hardly any of the shared rooms. That's like one percent, maybe, of the market. Entire homes are, you know, about about two thirds of the whole thing. Um, and within that, uh, it became clear that around forty percent, somewhere between forty and fifty percent of Airbnb's business in New York came from people who had 
multiple listings on the site. And that suggests that they are, you know, doing this as a business, doing this as a commercial operation. And so then that raises questions, well, okay, so then is, is this really just a way of for people to run a commercial operation and avoid things like the expense of things like fire inspections, the expense of taxes, and, and, and so on? Um, what, you know, what kind of a business is it? And what, as it explodes, and that was two years ago at a time when Airbnb had 15,000 listings in New York, now it has 35,000. So it's really, it's really grown substantially. Like, how does that affect, you know, housing in, in, in areas of the city that have um, stress and a lack of affordable housing um, and are uh, housing shortages? And I think there are these hotspots in different cities where it really can have a destructive effect. And I think it, it gets most of its money from tourist centers. Uh, it gets most of its money within those cities from the high, the high tourist environments. You know, people need, cities need to have levers to be able to balance the interests of tourists against the interests of those who are actually living in the city. And the Airbnb model really provides a lot of people with a way to get around those that, that balance and, and means that cities have a really hard time to to balance um, the needs of consumerism, if you like, of, of travel and tourism with other needs in the city um, that are maybe less dramatic and less glamorous and a bit boring, but nevertheless important. And both Airbnb and Uber have played fairly active political lobbying roles in cities, trying to reshape the laws and the regulatory environment in their own interests, which you write about quite a bit, including like some fake astroturf kind of movements, right? Yeah, they, they certainly, they were involved in setting up movements uh, a couple of years ago. Um, there was a group called Peers that they helped to set up. It was sad in a way because I think many of the people involved in peers thought of themselves as being community activists involved in a community activist kind of campaign. Um, I talked to several of them who, you know, they are in in other areas people that uh, folks on the left would I you know would would see yeah these are our people you know but I think I think they got sold a bill of goods they they ended up basically doing things that were a front for some very large companies. Um, and I think since then, both the, those companies and others have have found an excellent ways of, of using their user base. You know, obviously, they do have a strong user base to sway um, government. So in San Francisco, obviously, um, housing is an issue out there, uh, like in many booming cities. And uh, there, there was a measure introduced called Proposition F uh, late last year. Where they're trying to say, okay, let's some, put some limits around what people can do, so that we don't uh, have, you know, our, our scarce uh, affordable housing stock turned into, uh, you know, short-term rentals on Airbnb. Uh, it went down partly because of Airbnb advertised very heavily, and partly because they brought their user base out as, as an active force. And we've seen that elsewhere. Uber will basically build into its app. You know, you get app upgrades through your smartphone. It will build into its app to a new features so that you can actually say it'll come up right there. Do you want to send a message to the mayor of your city to say, you know, let's get Uber going? Um, so wow. it, it becomes a political thing. In Austin right now, they're leading an effort to get rid of councillors who oppose them. So that they, they have a very direct line to their, 
their customer base that way. And the other way is just old-fashioned lobbying. I mean, they have some very high-powered people. They have a lot of money to play with, right? Uber has an $8 billion, $8 billion war chest. Airbnb has like $2.5 billion. That, that buys you a lot of lobbying time. And uh, they've certainly been using that um, in, uh, uh, in Toronto. You know, they've been using it and in other cities throughout North America and beyond. And you, you talked about people being seduced. And uh, one, of your, one of your chapters, I think, discusses open source and free software. And so this was a painful chapter for me to read. You know, I see myself as an advocate for free software and, uh, and really excited about the poss these possibilities. And your chapter discusses how uh, free software, open source has kind of been incorporated into the system and how those slogans about openness uh, are actually actually not being used not in the service of openness necessarily. Yeah, this is this is uh, you know I think what I was trying to do there was say that there are these notions that come come out of Silicon Valley which are an odd combination of you know seemingly social progressive but also have this very free market um, ideas behind them and you know I. I I wrote the book on a Linux laptop um, using, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> using freeware stuff. So, you know, I, I too have a lot invested in uh, open source software um, in terms of time and, and so on. Uh, I not that I spend a lot of time developing it. No, a little bit, but not very much. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly very appealing for anyone who uses uses computers. There's a lot to be said for it. But I think what's happened again over time is, when something becomes free, it does. It can do one of two things. It, it can say, "All right, then." If something's free, if it becomes a commons, if you like, then it takes it out of the market. It takes it um, out of out of a market exchange because you can no longer buy and sell it. Um, but then it does something else too, which it becomes a free resource, and it means that you can build very. Uh, anything that's a complement to that in an economic sense becomes very valuable. So, for example, for Facebook, they, they could never have got as big as they were without using open source software to build their infrastructure. Then what becomes valuable is obviously the audience share they can grow and the advertising revenue they can get from that. Um, with Google, um, who is one of the companies that's most vocal about its commitment to openness, you know, that commitment somehow stops short when it comes to their advertising technology and their search engine, which, of course, they will keep to themselves, um, for, which is for our own good, of course, they'll say, because really other people would otherwise people would game the system. So I think what we always find is that people's commitment to openness tends to stop when they can make money off something that, that is a complement to it. You know, and, and I think Linux is an example of where that's gone, where, where I, you know, Linux was a remarkable thing that came up out of a, a lot of amateurs sharing code, but now it's essentially a consortium of big technology companies, um, you know, mm -hmm. including my employer, I have to say. So <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a, you know, if, if you, most of the code in any new release of Linux is now written by people who are employees at large technology companies. Um, so, so this is, it becomes very complicated as to, to what the, the rights and wrongs around this are. Um, but I do think that I think what happens is that 
Silicon Valley, in the end, sees markets and openness as really going together, you know, like fish and chips. Mm -hmm. But for many of us on the left, we see these as a dangerous intersection. And uh, I think that battle has to some extent been lost, that the Silicon Valleys have, have won that. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so where does that leave us? You know, I think it, it doesn't mean that you know, you were wrong in your commitment to this. It just means that like a lot of movements, they have their li a limited time span and, and over time need to be either reworked or revisited or have its foundations um, re-examined. And I think open source has been around for, you know, it's been a significant movement for a good 20 years now. And it, in a way, it would be surprising if it hadn't lost, if it hadn't been forced into compromises of some of those principles that it started out with. Yeah, and I guess sometimes it's it's it, I think it's an example of a movement where some some of its successes have led to these contradictions in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Um, the your your discussion of the culture industries was was interesting for me because I've I've uh, self published a novel on Kindle and I'm selling it for three dollars and uh, I my hopes for fame and fortune were dashed by the analysis that you produced there, uh, which shows that most of the revenue is is still in these blockbusters and just the fact that somebody can get my can easily find my novel on Amazon doesn't mean that anybody's actually going to read it yeah that's it's um you know I, I think we saw this uh come up again in, in some of the the early enthusiasm you know, as, as the internet hit the mainstream so we had Examples like, you know, science fiction author Cory Doctorow, who would write about, you know, my my problem is not getting people to pay. My problem is getting exposure. And if I want to get exposure, the best way to do it is to release a book for free and let people copy it and share it. And I'll get enough coming back at the end of the day to make that effort worthwhile. You know, and that's what he did. And, and it worked for him. And it's worked for many people. It, you know, let's be free. The world is a big place. Um, I think that's one of the things that's confusing here is you know, the world is so big that you can really find examples of, of, of success for almost any model you want to investigate. But, but over time, what has happened is uh, certainly, you know, where do these things have to go through? They all have to go, you know, you, there, there's always, it just means that the, the gatekeepers have moved from one place to another. If the publishers are no longer the gatekeepers, well, maybe Amazon becomes the gatekeeper. Um, Amazon becomes the place that you have to crack. And I think indie developers on on the iPhone app store are finding the same thing. You know, yes, there's a gold rush. Uh, everyone runs to it. But, you know, quite soon, that means that it's very difficult to stand out from that crowd. And uh, the people who are ending up benefiting from this, I think, are the platform owners in the end. Right. And so if at, towards the end, you have a few suggestions. If you're if you are, in fact, somebody who believes in sharing and community, uh, you you recommend that they that we look to working in our cities at that level. Uh, and some of the some of the beautiful things that have happened and that are happening in cities. Maybe you want to maybe we should kind of wrap up or, or conclude on that more optimistic note yeah i mean i think it's it's, it's so, so <laughs> let's be honest that was one of the weaker chapters of the book i think you know, it's, <laughs> it's difficult to uh, 
it's difficult to it, it's one thing to 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 look out and to provide a critique um you know to say all right this is the way forward i think is always more challenging but but nevertheless movements have come through these things um and have been able to find ways forward so there are certainly initiatives uh, in many places now where people are saying can we combine technology platforms in other ways so um there's a conference i was at last autumn around what they call platform cooperativism you know the general question is if if uber drivers owned the uber platform you know how different would that make it be um and that, that would change some things about it would it change enough to be successful you know i don't know but i think it's worth finding out um and i think it's great that there are some people trying those kind of things um i think the other thing is one of the things that's happened is that despite the success of uber and airbnb a lot of the other sharing economy companies are kind of fizzling out to be honest you know we we've had the house cleaning ones they kind of went bust a lot of the delivery ones they're having a really hard time getting by so it might be that there's an element of a bubble in this um but yeah i think if we want peer to peer exchanges if we want commu- strong communities i don't i i think let, let's just accept that technology does many wonderful things but it does not provide a shortcut to creating those communities Thank you very much Tom. Uh you're also the author of a book called No One Makes You Shop at Walmart and I think it's got something to do with decision making. Maybe could you just give us like a a little minute or two minutes just about what that's about? Yeah, it came out um about it's been out for uh, several years now from Between the Lines Press in in, in Toronto. Um so the that's really a, an investigation of individual choice. I mean, I think for many of us we we on the left again we find it difficult to address the idea that you know when people make the language of individual choice has been to some extent um taken over by the right, but it's also a very difficult language to to go against what are you against less you in favor of less choice and it's, it's not really an appealing thing to go after so i was really looking at a lot of situations where individual choice leads to less than good outcomes um where in the end if you want to get decent outcomes in situations then collective action is still has a strong strong role to play in society so the walmart case was the you know the original if you go back a few years you know people shop at walmart but it may erode many of the things that they like about their own community um and so our consumer selves does one thing but that ends up kicking back on our communities on ourselves as citizens on ourselves as as employees on ourselves as workers so uh, it was an attempt to to take a look at that to to attack the notion of individual choice and to try to construct some alternatives. All right. I'll check it out. Thank you so much Tom Tomsley, the author of What's Yours is Mine Against the Sharing Economy. Thank you Justin. Thank you.